Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Cassandra Quave, an ethnobotanist at Emory University, searches for plants that may be used to treat life-threatening illnesses. Her lab has discovered compounds found in chestnuts, blackberries, and a host of other plants that can help treat antimicrobial resistance by stopping bacteria from communicating with each other, or adhering to our tissues, or even producing toxins. In her new memoir, The Plant Hunter, Clave discusses how a childhood staph infection and its lifelong complications motivated her deeply personal fight against antibiotic-resistant bacteria. In her quest for new treatments, she has explored the rainforests of the Amazon, the mountains of Italy, Albania, and Kosovo, and the swamps of Florida. Cassandra Quave joins us on the podcast to talk about how she discovered why and how plant-based folk medicines work. Thanks for talking to me, Cassandra. Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. One thing that surprised me reading your book is how little research goes into plants. I think I assumed since a couple of famous medicines like penicillin and aspirin come from natural sources that this was like a rich field of study. But that was, and maybe still is, not exactly the case. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, right? We have around 374,000 species of plants that we even know of. And around 33,000 of those have been used in traditional medicine. And we've only studied a few hundred of those in depth in the, through the lens of science. I think part of the reason is that this kind of research is really complicated, right? You have to have people on your team that know how to identify the plants, how to select which species to study. But then once you bring those plants back to the laboratory, you know, a single plant tissue like a leaf may have hundreds of different compounds present. And so we literally have to pick through those hundreds of compounds um, to find the needle in the haystack. And that's what my lab's gotten really good at is finding the needles in the haystack to really try and understand which components in that tissue are responsible for the, you know, the cool pharmacological activities that we're seeing. And I say which components with an S because often nature works in combination, right? It's not, it's rarely just a single compound that's, that's responsible for the activity. There's often a number of them that are playing a role. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting was like one of your first big discoveries along this line of thinking had to do with blackberries. And the blackberry didn't really work so well at what you were trying to get it to do, but neither did the antibiotic. But then when you combined them, suddenly it worked. And I know that was like an infantile description of the complexity of what was going (laughs) on. (laughs) But I was wondering if you could um, talk about merging the two, because usually that's, you know, not what we think of. We think of holistic or traditional medicine, and then we think of modern medicine. Yeah. Well, I think first it's it's important for everyone to kind of wrap their brains around the fact that what we consider to be modern medicine today, for the most part, originated in traditional medicine. I mean, there are many examples of some of our leading drugs that first started in the, in the natural world. Uh, we now make those in pharmaceutical factories, but the original chemical blueprints were often discovered in nature. So the story with Blackberry is really kind of a fun one. And I I like that story because it's gone the full cycle. You know, I first documented the uses of blackberries in traditional medicine in Southern Italy when I was doing my my doctoral dissertation work. 
And I was interviewing people about the most interesting things ever. I was asking them about boils and skin abscesses <laughs> and all kinds of infections and things that, that people get on their skin. I mean, it happens, right? And so um, I was using that as a, as a way to really try and narrow in on which plants might have antimicrobial properties. And skin disease is a really easy place to start because people can describe what's going on with their skin. And so I started to learn about the use of blackberry leaves that they would put together with kind of pork fat and stick on the skin to treat these abscesses and boils. And then I heard about the use of, of the roots to treat hair loss. And so in the end, I collected both of those. I brought them back to the lab. And what I found is that while neither of those tissues yielded extracts that killed bacteria, like we think of regular antibiotics, they stopped bacteria from sticking to surfaces in something called a biofilm. So everyone has experienced a biofilm. You experience it every morning when you rub your tongue over your teeth and you feel that kind of gritty, slimy feeling. That's microbes in your mouth that are kind of building a little fortress on the surface of your teeth. And it helps to defend them against, you know, things in the body that might attack them and, and compromise their survival. And so what the blackberry did, I discovered in the lab, is it stopped that process. It stops the bacteria from sticking to surfaces. And this is where antibiotics come in, right? Because sometimes um, bacteria can attach to other surfaces in your body. If you think about, for example, a knee replacement or a hip replacement or an IV catheter, if a bacteria figures out how to stick to that surface, it can be incredibly difficult to get rid of that infection. And so I was interested in looking for ways to improve, you know, how we can address those types of infections. And that's when I decided to test you know, this biofilm inhibitor from BlackBerry alone and then in combination with the antibiotic. And indeed, with the antibiotic, it, it cleared, the, um, cleared the bacteria off of the device. And so I think it's really exciting. We're working on that now, of translating that into the clinic, hopefully. Um, we've uh, licensed it out to another company that's developing an all-natural, eco-friendly bandage that will combine kind of antimicrobial plant products that um, kill or inhibit the growth of bacteria along with this biofilm inhibitor from the BlackBerry um, to improve our ways of treating wounds. I thought it was so interesting, too, that like these extracts, these compounds from plants work by changing the way the bacteria interact with each other, like making them think they're bacterium instead of bacteria, like they're yes. all alone and they can't gang up on you anymore. Um, yeah. And that was like a really unusual approach. And I was I was surprised to learn that that sort of came out of your understanding of folk medicine in Italy. Can you explain the connection there? Like, what does folk medicine have to do with like changing the way we think about bacteria thinking with each other? <laughs> it is a pretty big leap right there, I guess, when you put, when you put it that way. Um, you know, I, I like to approach folk medicine in traditional medicine, different systems of medicine that are other than are kind of what we consider to be quote unquote modern medicine of, you know, a pharmaceutical pill used to treat a single target in the body or a single pathway. What I've learned in work interfacing with healers and different systems of medicine, different systems of healing is that there's more than one way to attack a disease. And maybe sometimes it's not always even attacking the disease. Sometimes it's actually better enabling the patient to defend themselves against that disease. Or, you know, you could think about it as, as boosting your immune system, um, for example. But, you know, the questions that came out of my work early on came about because here I had all of these layers of evidence that people are using these plants successfully, by the way, to manage infection. This is knowledge that's been passed down from generation to generation. And, you know, when I brought this back to the lab, 
the obvious question to ask during this period in the history of science and medicine is, well, does it kill bacteria or does it slow down their growth? Because that's kind of how we think about treating infection under the lens of Western medicine today. Um, but they didn't. <laughs> A lot of them did not. And so it left me with this question, well, what else might be going on? And so that's kind of how I made that leap. It was because, you know, I think we have to be careful in the way that we frame scientific questions that we don't allow our arrogance to get in the way of discovery, right? I think it's arrogant to think that things can only work in a certain way. And so it's by opening up to these other ideas, well, you know, and exploring those other ideas, I think that can lead us to new and interesting discoveries. And that's kind of how I bridge that gap is by remaining open-minded enough to ask different questions. And at the same time, realizing also, I'm never going to have all the right questions in my era of science. Maybe 500 years from now, some other brilliant scientists will have additional like new insights because we'll have so many more tools. But, you know, to really appreciate where we're going, we have to first understand where we've come from. And, you know, the systems of medicine that that humans have developed in, in many different cultures are just incredible, just incredible. I mean, I, yeah, I, if you look at texts, for example, by um, Dioscorides, who was a Roman physician that traveled in, you know, throughout the Mediterranean during the time of Nero, like his, his book, De Materia Medica, documented the use of many different plants. And those uses were then taught, you know, for centuries, you know, basically through the creation of these herbal texts that were passed down from century to century. You know, if you think of the monks, they're coloring their, their, these intricate designs. I mean, that knowledge was passed down and, and it, and it evolves. That's another thing that's important to note is that traditional knowledge isn't static. It constantly evolves. And I like to think about this when you think about your favorite family recipe, you know, and I use the example of apple pie. So if grandma's apple pie is something that her grandmother taught her and her grandmother taught her, but maybe at each generation, you know, somebody adds a little pinch of cinnamon or someone else decides to make the crust with just a little bit more butter um, you know, and, and that's kind of modified slightly to your taste and passed on. And, you know, traditional knowledge of medicines works in a very similar way. And what's important is if grandma, great, great grandma's apple pie tastes horrible and no one will eat it, that is a recipe that's not passed down. The same can be said for traditional medicines. If the medicines don't work, consistently don't work, that knowledge is kind of dropped off right? It's, it's not consistently passed down. And so that's why I think like understanding and appreciating the history, that historical longevity of some of these bases of knowledge is really important. I think the key difference of your work is that you operate from a starting point that traditional folk plant-based medicines work. We might not know how or why yet, but as you've said, if they've stuck around for this long, there's probably something to it, right? But that attitude is not really common. <laughs> And plants and folk medicine seem to be just about the last places scientists look. <laughs> like you wrote about how people are obsessed with analyzing synthetic compounds instead. Just like, well, throw these things together and that's a new compound. Go see if it works somewhere. Like, like why, do, why, why do that when you could look at like, I don't know, tens of thousands of years of folk medicine instead? I guess my bias is showing here, but. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I mean, I. <laughs> I want to be clear that I think that at the time, they really thought they were onto something. They really thought that, you know, we have these new emerging technologies in combinatorial chemistry, which allowed people to create these compounds. And at the same time, you had advances in robotics that allowed for liquid handling systems. So you could screen, you could test thousands of compounds that wouldn't have been possible 
in the past, right? And so the idea was just by sheer volume, <laughs> we'll get to something. Of course, that was a big flop and didn't work for antibiotics. Um, part of the reason they started doing that, though, too, is they kept basically recapturing the low-hanging fruit, a lot of the soil microbes that had been looked at before, which is where many of our, our current antibiotics come from. Um, you know, they kept rediscovering the same molecules over and over, or they discovered molecules that were too toxic to really be useful in humans. There were programs that were looking at plants. Um, many of those were retired in the 90s. The National Cancer Institute still does have a very large, impressive collection of plant natural products, and they're trying to get those out into the hands of more researchers. I think that really a lot of the bottleneck has been just in our in our toolkit. Like I said, that complexity, those hundreds of molecules are really difficult to sort through. Um, and so it's really only in the past... I would venture to say even in the past decade that we've really started to open the door to to more and more sensitive tools, not only for separation of these compounds, but also identification, because these are compounds that are often not known to science, and they're really wacky. I mean, if you can imagine a very simple molecule like phenol, you know, little ring, right? These are just rings upon rings and all kinds of little appendages, kind of like a medusa, you know, coming out of them all in all kinds of different areas of space. And they're really difficult to also build in the lab, even when you do have the blueprints. Um, but again, I think I'm excited because I think that, you know, we're just now starting to get better tools that allow us to really capture these molecules and capture their structures. Yeah. I mean, it also seems like like the loosening of boundaries between the sciences has been key to that, too, because like at the on the one hand, you do have like incredible advances and being able to, to isolate, to examine, to recreate all of that stuff. But you mm -hmm. also have like the merging and the overlapping of different fields. Um, could you talk about like why that's important for your research? Yeah, it's it is really important. I mean, the ability to take a look at a scientific problem from the lens, from an interdisciplinary lens of really incorporating the humanities, incorporating linguistics, botany, microbiology, chemistry, it's, it, it takes a lot of different viewpoints. That said, that's not a very well accepted <laughs> approach to science today. Um, and it's also really difficult to juggle. Um, the way I like to explain it to people is I feel like I'm multilingual in, in multiple languages of science. And what I'm good at doing is bringing together talented people that have expertise in those different domains to all look at the problem together. Um, so that's kind of how I approach science a little bit differently. So we're, you know, it's an odd lab, I, I, but I like odd things, you know. So we have like pharmacologists, you might have like, a, you know, we actually have a a gynecological surgeon that's working with us right now. We have, you know, folks that are more on the anthropology side. We have more on the botany side, the natural products chemistry side. And so you can imagine in a typical lab environment, you're usually, you know, a group of chemists or a group of botanists or, you know, but we're a lot coming at these things from many different angles and each of us brings something to the table. And so it's a lot of fun for me um, because I'm constantly learning also from my trainees, if, if that makes sense. Um, and we're learning from each other. And it's a it's a different way of looking at it, but I think it allows us to have a, a a different a different outlook and perspective on some of these, and that really helps to fuel our creativity. Yeah, and it's a it's like a really urgent problem too, because your research focuses specifically. I mean, a lot of the times on antibiotic resistant bacteria, um, mm -hmm. and specifically staph infections um, in some aspects, which is a staggering, frightening thing in its own right. But your research is actually 
pretty personal for you, right? Like you've had quite the encounter with staff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, one of the unfortunate people that acquired a really bad infection following a surgery. So my, my medical history is complicated. I have multiple, you know, skeletal deformities that I was born with, um, you know, where I was missing bones and then my hip didn't develop correctly. And I got super, super, you know, S-shaped curve during puberty where I had to have my back straightened. So I've, you know, I've had many, many surgeries throughout my lifetime, but it was my first surgery during the amputation of my leg that almost killed me because when I came home, you know, an an infection unbeknownst to the healthcare providers at the time had started to set in and was discovered by my mother um, after we made it home after a few days and actually really had lifelong consequences for me. Obviously, I survived the infection. Luckily, it wasn't a methicillin-resistant strain of staph, which can be very aggressive um, at the time because this is in the 1980s and they weren't as common then. But, you know, it left me with very little tissue under my stump and my bone had to be cut back even further. And so basically, I now have a, my right stump. I have a very short stump, so very short distal limb beneath the, the knees, just enough bone to be able to actually keep my knee to walk with my own you know knee joint. But there's nothing but scar tissue under the bone. So I can't handle like high impact kind of exercise. I mean, I would love to be able to bounce around on one of those bouncy legs that you see at the, you know, the Paralympics, but <laughs> I can't, I just can't handle the, the, that impact because of the lack of tissue there. So the infections had long lasting effects on me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that you still say, despite all that, that you were lucky that it wasn't an antibiotic resistant staph infection really points to the urgency of the problem we're facing today. What is it like? tens of thousands of people dying from untreatable infections every year. Um, But on the flip side, there's this other urgency, right, which is that a lot of these plants that could potentially save us are disappearing because of climate change. And also the clues to figuring out which of those hundreds of thousands of plants could be helpful are disappearing because people are losing touch with their folkways, with their languages and so on, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know it's, I'm such a doomsday teller here. It's like <laughs> with my name, so very precious, Cassandra and her curse. But you're absolutely right. I can give listeners some figures. I mean, right now, according to an estimate that came out of a report from the UK, we have around 700,000 people globally that die each year due to untreatable wow. antimicrobial resistant infections. Um, by the year 2050, so by mid-century, it's anticipated to reach 10 million a year. And if you think about this in terms of COVID, you know, in the first year of COVID, we lost 2 million globally. And five times that is projected annually um, by mid-century due to antimicrobial resistant infections. The challenges are numerous. I mean, when it comes to the poor stewardship of antibiotics, why we've gotten to this place is a whole other, you know, many people have written amazing books about how this, how we've gotten to this place. There are also a lot of economic challenges, you know, where it's very difficult to develop new antibiotics because there just isn't the economic incentive and the way that our drug development um, kind of industry is set up is it's very much a private enterprise. Um, and I really think in the future, we're going to have to have more government intervention to, to develop some of these drugs because, you know, all of modern medicine depends on antibiotics. 
period. I mean, if you think about the number of deaths that occurred in the pre-antibiotic era due to simple things like, you know, a scratch in the garden and you could die of that. Or imagine if you have a urinary tract infection that you can't get rid of or strep throat that you can't treat. I mean, there are a lot of things that we just take for granted that we take a pill and it goes away and you feel better. Um, and that kind of way of practicing medicine may not be with us for very much longer. And so there, there isn't, there's a, there's an urgency to find new ways to deal with these infections. There's an urgency to find also new ways to help restore the activity of those antibiotics. And that's another kind of angle that we've been taking is looking to some of these plant compounds that are actually capable of dismantling some of those resistance pathways and making the antibiotics work again against some of these resistive bacteria. And, and we've had some insights um, working even with species that we collect here in, in the state of Georgia, we've done some really interesting work with the American beautyberry that has a compound that can restore the activity of beta-lactam antibiotics. But as you mentioned, you know, climate change, biodiversity crisis, the linguistic crisis, and the loss of many, many indigenous cultures is presenting even greater hurdles. So there's, there's an urgency across the board when it comes to the need for more scientists to not only document this knowledge to help conserve these habitats and the plants that live in them, um, and also to do the, the work in the lab. So, you know, on one hand, it's kind of scary. On the other hand, it's also really exciting because there are many ways that, that the scientists of the future can make really important contributions coming at this, again, from the humanities to the natural sciences to more of laboratory-based studies. There's, there's lots of ways we can all pitch in. On that point, I mean, I think a perfect illustration of that double bind is this moment you describe in the Amazon before you even became an ethnobotanist, where you're in these villages that are sort of in limbo between traditional life and a Western life. And one of the tragedies there is that so many kids are infected with intestinal parasites. But because, quote unquote, development is so uneven, no one actually has the money to buy dewormers. But then, like, the real tragic twist is that there are traditional medicines that you say are literally growing in the middle of the village that used to be the cure, but no one has the knowledge to use those either. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for any of the, the plant nerds in the audience, the ohe trees, ficus insipida, and the moraceae family, it's in the fig family. And I learned about it during my first trip to the Amazon. Um, I was um, a rising senior in college and had gone down to work as a, as a research intern with a, with a kind of research station in the Peruvian Amazon near the Ecuadorian border. And I worked with a traditional healer. And this is one of the plants that he taught me about. And in my second trip, I did more work with local communities. And I was really interested in child health. I was taking courses in public health at the time, especially interested in international health and some of like maternal and child health issues. And one of the things that became very clear to me is that there, these children were suffering, like you said, from very high levels of parasite burden. So you can get intestinal parasites through drinking contaminated water. And again, kids would just drink water straight out of the river um, or running around barefoot, which everybody did. So they can, they can come in these ways. And in the past, when these, when these communities, before they'd become more westernized, um, within the indigenous communities, they would use um, plant-based medicines like the latex of the ohe fig to regularly deworm their children. And this was overseen by the local healer. The challenge with ohe is that if you take it at the wrong dose, it can be very toxic, right? And be, cause very painful abdominal cramping. And so um, 
which can also be exacerbated if the person's already very far along in an infection. So it's something that needs to be done more as like a prophylactic regular deworming, not wait until you're like have a whole lot of, of, of worms present. Um, and so here you have this conundrum of where biomedicine and well-intentioned introduction of Western medicine had helped to push out traditional medicine and you were left even with the plants and the people, but there was no knowledge of how to use the medicine safely. And as a consequence, these kids are suffering from higher rates of a number of different diseases, including like respiratory disease, anemia. They're in a malaria endemic zone. So just at greater risk for a number of other health consequences because of this heavy parasite burden. And for me, that was really a turning point in what I wanted to do with my life because until that point, I really was on this path towards going to medical school. Um, that was what I felt like I was destined to do. And really thinking about the potential of understanding kind of the pharmacological potential of nature, you know, and understanding these dynamics of where Western medicine can both help, but sometimes also harm when introduced improperly. That's what got me interested in ethnobotany. So how do we bridge that gap? You can't unring that bell. You can't take Western medicine out of these communities. Mm -hmm. How do you think we bridge plant-based medicine, folk medicine, with modern pharmaceuticals in these places? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the intent there is never to remove Western medicine from these communities. The challenge is that they don't have a cash economy. They had no way to refill their pharmaceutical stocks. So basically they were left with being introduced to Western medicine, having no money to buy more of it for the community, and then they don't have the knowledge of how to use their local resources. So mm -hmm. I think it can be integrated successfully. I mean, I think if you look, for example, at systems of medicine, you know, ranging from Ayurveda to traditional Chinese medicine, you see plenty of examples of success stories of how you can have an integration of both Western and traditional medical practices. I think when it comes to ethnobotanists, there's an important role that we can play, not only in documenting knowledge, but also in celebrating it and working with communities to ensure that the knowledge is accessible um, to future generations and, and to, you know, to really demonstrate the value of this knowledge um, uh, to people, both in communities and, and abroad. And, you know, when you think about some of these modern medicines, you know, Western medicines that are then introduced back into places like the Amazon, you know, the irony is that some of those medicines originated in the Amazon. <laughs> and they, they, that's where the chemical blueprints were originally taken. And now they're brought back in the form of pills. But that was their medicine initially. And I mean, that opens up a whole other box around issues of ethics and access and benefit sharing, because also in addition to recording and celebrating and saving knowledge and living with that knowledge, we have to do a better job of also ensuring that local people reap the rewards of that knowledge and of, of propagating the genetic resources that the rest of the world may be able to benefit from. We have links in the show notes to Cassandra Quave's new book, The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines, as well as her foodie pharmacology podcast, which talks about food and pharmacology. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm -hmm.